brought to you by Penguin. And welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Izzy Sutty, and today we're speaking to the fantastic David Mitchell. David is a comedian, writer, and actor who's starred in many of the UK's best loved TV shows, including that Mitchell and Webb look, Upstart Crow, and of course, Peep Show. He's a team captain on Would I Lie to You, the host of The Unbelievable Truth on Radio 4, and one of The Observer's most popular columnists. He's also also a history graduate from Cambridge University and Unruly, A History of England's Kings and Queens is his first history book and mine, which we'll come on to. Not claiming I wrote any of it. It's the first time I've read one. Um, hello, David. Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Uh, hello. Thanks for having me. So this is the first history book I've ever read. I'm not counting um, GCSE history books, of course. <laughs> I really, really loved it. It's so funny. And I think once you've been reading funny things for a few decades and sort of reading scripts and things, it, it takes a lot more to make me laugh. I don't know about you, but I was <laughs> genuinely bursting out laughing so many times. Like There's so many brilliant jokes in it, but also it really conveys your passion for history. And I think that's reflected in the detail you go into and the glee with which you view all these monarchs. And the language that you use is really beautiful as well. I love the bit where you describe the Oxpens area of Oxford, which has been redeveloped multiple times as scar tissue. <laughs> I don't imagine it could have been written quickly just because of that detail and that nuance. Thank you for that. That was, that's lovely. I'm really glad you enjoyed it. And I'm glad that your first experience of a history book wasn't too bleak. I, I started writing it at the... I think towards the end of the lockdown and I started writing about the Vikings and it was because I thought uh, you know obviously Covid was intensely depressing and I thought that I thought it was a bit like the Vikings or you know from Covid from our point of view was a bit like the Vikings from the Anglo-Saxons point of view and that they suddenly started arriving (laughs) this bad thing happened out of the blue and made everything suddenly worse and no one had seen it coming. And and as with COVID, which, you know, there's a lot of talk about what they could have done differently, and which was mainly praying. They felt <laughs> that God was angry and that's why the Vikings... We, we, people didn't say so much with COVID. They said more stuff about having more PPE in cupboards. But broadly speaking... It just it just happened, and it was a massive pisser. Uh, and I, and by writing about another massive pisser a long time ago, I, I found that a bit cathartic. And I enjoyed writing about it. And I was I'd read a book called a Germania or Germania. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. By a chap called Simon Winder, and that's a personal history of Germany that he wrote. And it's great. There were bits of it that were so sort of funny and fun and discursive and about his life and, you know, but all, but weaving through the history of the Holy Roman Empire largely. And I thought I'd love to try and make this in that kind of style. Um, he's much more knowledgeable than me, but I thought I'll try and shove in more gags. And, uh, and yeah, and so starting with the Vikings and moving outwards in two directions, I got to the point where I'd written about what turned out to be about a third of the book. And then I thought, OK, maybe I'll ask if anyone might want to publish it if I finished it. I was at The Hygienist this week and it didn't hurt, actually, but I know my friend has to take painkillers before The Hygienist. Um, I, I don't. Uh, not a brag, but I don't. Um, but I was thinking about how... Actually, I was talking to my partner about this the other day, how 
and I think in the whole period that you cover in this, which doesn't come up to the present day for reasons you explain in the book, but people were in pain a lot of the time, physical pain. There wasn't medicine as we know it. And their attitudes were so different. And like, like I was thinking, mm. I'm so grumpy when, I, when I've got toothache. Like People go around murdering their nephews willy-nilly. Maybe when you're things are more kind of basic when you're, you haven't got as many options. You just think, can we forgive them? Or uh, I sort of think, isn't kindness innate? Or is that just a really naive thing to think? Well, it's, it's, it's very odd because some of the behaviour is just so... I mean, obviously, people do terrible things now, but the, the brutality, the in-your-face brutality of the terrible things they did, it does feel like it's... Uh, more unusual now and yes you sort of think what were <laughs> were they just were they horrible were they worse than us and you sort of go as soon as you're saying that you know they can't have been but yes obviously the world they were in was very very painful and also crucially what religion meant to them was totally different and I think that's in the focus on empathy that the sort of GCSE syllabus yeah. of the last 30 years has had I think in a way people get pushed to empathy too soon because you've got to realise before you start empathising, you've got to realise how different they were. And obviously they were the same as us, that in a way they ate and drank and feared and loved, but also they were really, really different psychologically and they had a totally different worldview. And for me, the way in is seeing their religion wasn't like a very religious person now. It's a totally different order of magnitude. It's like science is now. Christianity, as believed in in medieval England, it was just the truth. And the king was God's representative. And he was endorsed by this being that definitely existed. And that was how they thought about it. So believing in it wasn't a sort of choice, which it is now. It was just th the truth, like electricity. And once, you, if you make that leap, you realise, OK, that's different. So death really is different. You know, if someone dies, but they're in, as it were, in a good state of grace, they're, they're going to go to heaven. So it's actually not that bad. And people are dying all the time. So it's impossible to see it as quite the same thing as, as it is now. Yes. Now we basically, there are people who have faith and people who don't. But even the people who have faith are thinking, maybe this is the end. I, I really think in the Middle Ages, there was a lot more confidence because there's so much stuff to do with religion in their lives. And the churches are the only really tall buildings of any aesthetic worth. They just thought that their immortal soul was more important than their human existence. And, and that, I think, is a real rarity now and induced a very different behaviour. It's like the opposite to that guy who's trying to live forever. I don't know if you've read about him, but he injects himself every day with 33 different kinds of things. His only, right. his only aim is to live forever. I don't know what, what they would have made of him. Yes, no, I mean, absolutely. It takes the pressure off because I think living forever, it's, it's, it's obviously impossible. Yes. But it, it was even trickier then. <laughs> And, and one of the things that, you know, so many pleasing narrative of a part of medieval history sort of spoilt by someone just dying. And it was, there wasn't any real build up and <laughs> no expectation of it. But they've just suddenly, what? It was just, you know, and it, that can still happen. But most deaths now happen largely in old age. And that gives a very different tenor to human interaction. Yeah, because there are so much death. I mean, there's people who die of things that could now probably be prevented, like illnesses. There's the guy 
guy, and I don't remember who this is, it's early on, he's on a boat and he dies of food poisoning. They get very drunk. Um, no, no, he doesn't die. That there's the, Everyone else dies oh, yeah, on the boat. Oh, yeah, he doesn't go on it. Yes, King Stephen, who later usurped the throne, so he's just called Stephen at that point, he's on this boat, they're all getting pissed and then he uh, suddenly gets diarrhea and he leaves the ship in order to go and um, you know relax in a loo for several hours and and then the ship leaves and it sinks and everyone dies apart from a butcher uh, which is basically most of the young English aristocracy including the heir to the throne and it causes huge ramifications for royal succession as well as being a, you know a trauma uh, even in medieval times that was quite a massive trauma for the whole ruling class it was like the somme for them really yeah but yeah he lives because he had food poisoning and then when the king henry the first dies he quickly nicks the throne with uh, far more murderous consequences than one shipwreck there's then a massive civil war for several decades do you find yourself doing a sliding doors thing when you think about things like that and actually so many incidents in the history of monarchy is it enjoyable to you to go if that hadn't happened and he had died yeah and then so so and so would have then been king and then well, if he died who knows what would have happened it's quite likely there would have been a different usurper i think but the key question is, what if the ship hadn't sunk and the main heir to the throne had uh, inherited as planned? Then we wouldn't have had the civil war between Stephen and Matilda. Henry II, who was Matilda's son, who then inherited the throne and created this international empire briefly with controlling most of France as well as England, he wouldn't have been king. So, yeah, that gets a bit sort of exciting. Things could have gone off in another direction. But then I always sort of figure that in most of those circumstances it would revert to the course that it was on anyway quite soon, that the broader geopolitical forces would remain the same. But the key question I asked that about is the Battle of Hastings. What if that had gone the other way? Because that, in the short term, would have been a very different England. Because you've got William the Conqueror wins and he basically gets rid of the whole ruling class. The whole Anglo-Saxon aristocracy are fired and he brings in French people and the ruling class speak French for several centuries. And that's like a totally different type of person speaking, as far as the locals would be concerned, absolute gibberish and bossing everyone around for yes. ages. And that would have been really different if Harold Godwinson had, had won that battle. Well, why don't we talk about that object first? So we're going to do the objects in a, in a different order for the first time ever, David. Oh, right. yeah. um, but I think we should talk about that object first. So we always ask authors to bring in objects. Now, obviously, you don't own some of these. If you do, and I have even more respect for you than I already do. Um, but let's, um, let's talk about that one first. So this object is something that blinds and you've chosen the arrow itself. Mm -hmm. Yes, the, the arrow that may have been the way Harold Godwinson, King Harold of Hastings, died. Uh, that's my slightly virtual object, an 11th century arrow. The loss of that battle, that battle could really have gone either way. There was nothing inevitable about that. Harold was a very capable professional king. He had no real right to the throne, uh, but had seized it with some vigour and was accepted completely within England, which is rare for a fundamentally a usurper. He wasn't a usurper in some ways in that he claimed he'd been left the throne by Edward the Confessor, but William also claimed that. But he definitely had the support of the next rung down because they thought this is going to be the best, the most peaceful, the most stable way out. He's, he's got all the power. Let him be in charge. 
he seems quite professional and not too psycho, considering the age. And he'd done very well for the most of the year of 1066. He got himself crowned the day after Edward the Confessor's funeral. So he was, he was aware he had to move quickly. But things were stable. He'd got ready for William to invade. He had a large force dotted around the south coast. He was directing operations from the Isle of Wight, all ready to pounce on William and repel him immediately. But then the weather was bad, and so William didn't come over the summer. And then the troops are hanging around the south coast, and Harold says, well, I'm going to have to let them go home. Yes, he lets them go, and then he has to recall them. Yeah, and that obviously is a nightmare. He lets them go, and then he discovers there's been an invasion in the north from Harold Hardrada, the king of Norway, with Harold of Hastings' tricky brother Tostig. And they've invaded in the north, and Harold Hardrada was very good at fighting and had been a guard of the Byzantine emperors and basically lost very few battles. And so this is a big problem. And Harold Godwinson gets his army together, marches up to the north, defeats Harold Hardrada and Tostig, and then discovers that William has now finally turned up on the south coast and he has to turn round, march all the way down. Tiring even to think about. William's there on the south coast. Harold gets there with quite a big army, not what it would have been if William had invaded when expected, but positions this army in a good defensive position. William's got to get past them or he's screwed. And Harold says, so guys, we need to just stand here. Okay, they come, we hit them, we hit them, we hit them, but don't chase them. Unfortunately, his army gets a bit overexcited at one point when he thinks the Normans are in retreat and they start chasing them. The Normans turn around, kill a load of them. And this technique is used time after time. And that's basically why William won. If they'd stayed still on the ridge in their defensive formation, William probably couldn't have got past them on that day. And then every day later, Harold's position is stronger because the noblemen are coming in from the rest of England. So it could so easily have gone another way. And I feel sorry for it. Yeah, because actually it's not his fault. His men disobeyed him. His men disobeyed. Obviously, that's partly, you know, it's a managerial partly, issue. Yes, if, yes. if people aren't motivated to do what they're told, who knows? But yes, it's basically really annoying. It's, a, it's one of those you had one job scenarios. Your one job is do not run down the hill. And then they ran down the hill. And I think you say they sort of almost like they're playing a game where mm. the Normans are kind of going, catch me if you can, kind of retreating further back and then almost goading them to... Yeah, that's what they th- think happened. The first time there was, a, you know, genuinely a sort of mini rout in the Norman army because they thought William might have been killed. But then William hadn't been killed and so they turn round and and start slashing at the people who'd followed them. And this, they realise this is very effective and they manage to repeat this feint uh, several times and they're just grinding the Anglo-Saxon numbers down. And yeah, and then at some point, Harold gets killed, maybe by an arrow in the eye. People like those stories, don't they? People really like to have um, a picture in their heads of this grim death, an arrow in the eye. I don't know why that feels more compelling than just he died and we don't know how. <laughs> yes. Well, it's, I suppose it's memorable. Yeah. At school, it's memorable. And, and the, that, that little moment of gore. 
and sort of thinking, I wouldn't like to be hit by an arrow, but where would you particularly not like to be hit by an arrow? Oh, the eye. That yes, be... it's like the worst. There's yeah. A, yeah, What exactly. would you do if you had an arrow in your eye? Would you leave it there? <laughs> would you snap it off? Would you try and pull it out? You know, would it get to your brain? Would you, you know, would you... And I think school children like reflecting on that and then suddenly that bit of history will be with them forever until some someone annoyingly says, well, we don't know that he yeah. was killed with an arrow in the eye and, and I always find that a slight shame. Yes, it's. I was thinking about GCSE history, which for me mainly focused on the Industrial Revolution because of partly because of being in Derbyshire and, and medicine as well and the American West later. But anyway, I was thinking about how the things I remember are gross things mm-hmm. like bloodletting and the four humours and phlegm and trephining where you drill a hole in the back of the head to supposedly let evil spirits out and it must be for exactly the same reason it's like you're going thank god i'm not having an operation with no anesthetic <laughs> yes yeah, the, the medical i mean the history of medicine is funny because yes. it's basically as far as i can tell doing more harm than good until the middle of the 19th century. And there are a lot of things that are quite advanced before the middle of the... I mean, you've got the Industrial Revolution and steam engines, for example, but still, basically what the doctors are peddling is some nonsense that their predecessors made up. And this whole issue of bleeding, that they're all convinced that bleeding is, is you know, that's the first thing you want to do, not take a couple of paracetamol, but bleed someone. <laughs> and because they've been saying that for so long, to admit that that does more harm than good becomes too terrible to do. And so the bleeding happens for longer than it needed to do because they can't, people can't say, well, it's, you're saying we've been doing harm for centuries and my father was doing harm. So, no, no, let's just tell ourselves that the bleeding is probably still a good start. But no, there's never any reason to bleed people. Bleeding is bad. Yes, <laughs> you know, it's you're getting rid of a thing that you really need. Yes, exactly. It's one of the things <laughs> that kills people. Were you like that too? Were you when... Because you, your love of history started young. Do you remember being fascinated by those gory bits? I know you love dates. It, it, yeah. It, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I mean, I like the gore, but I do like the date. What I like is putting things in order. And what I wanted, always wanted to know is what happened before and what happened next. And I'm, I've never been so interested in, in getting deeper in, but I wanted to go broader. And that's the, you know, a lot of the frustration of history at school and at GCSE is that there seems to be an urge to specialise. <laughs> and specialising pre-GCSE is quite early, you know, and, and I think what, it's fun then to is to know the broader sweep, the story. Obviously, you have to say, well, it, there, it isn't a story. There's no received version. This is all just something that's been pieced together from sources and has been interpreted. And that's an important thing to know in the internet age more than any other. But also, the basics is pretty much agreed on. So why not learn the sequence of rulers and have that broad sense of you know, there was the Norman Conquest and then there was a bit of uh, trying to be in charge of France and then there was a war of the Rose and then there was the Tudors. You can tell people that without betraying the, the nature of sources. Yes, and they're things we definitely know. Yes, yes, exactly. These are indisputable. So then within that, you can use your imagination or 
other knowledge to furnish what you think happened. Yes. And I think that the interpretation of sources, which I definitely had to do at GCSE quite a lot when I could have been (laughs) doing more general knowledge of other bits of history, the interpretation of sources is really a professional historian's job. It's not part of general knowledge. And I think quite a lot of people would like to have a bit more general knowledge of the past and the fun bits and the brutal bits. And so that phrases that refer to a bit of the past aren't a mystery to them. Do you still feel the same about, do you still like that, that rigorous element to it and and going broad rather than deep? Or as you've got older, do you like now to kind of learn a bit more about specific periods? Well, I think I like to know basically why things changed. I'm fine with basically why. And I always think that if you ask a historian a question, what they often want to say is, no, it's not that. And if you manage to ask them a question and they don't say, no, it's not that, what they usually say is, well, it's a bit more complicated than that. And at that point, I sort of feel, OK, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> if it's, if I, so I'm, ba- I'm there or thereabouts. OK, it's a bit more complicated than that, but it's, that's not wrong. What happened next? Yes, because they're the things you can be sure of, I suppose. You describe the well chamber within Oxford Castle as a genuinely haunting space. I know you've got this big connection to Oxford that is presumably genuinely haunted, which is a lovely line. Um, And you say near the beginning of the book, you're you're not entirely sure that there isn't a God. Do you feel the same about the supernatural do ghosts exist? <laughs> I, I think I don't think ghosts exist. I like ghosts as a thing to talk about. I like stories with ghosts. I like films with ghosts. I like those kind of, you know, the kind of mystery of, you know, that what what could have happened? It must have been a ghost. I, <laughs> but I think, no, it, it's not a ghost. But I like talking in that area. But no, I don't really think the well chamber is genuinely haunted because I, I can't understand why ghosts hang out in such quiet spots. Because if if the system <laughs> that's in place was that some translucent, unhappy version of people who died or people who died in a way they weren't thrilled by hung about for ages, then wouldn't central London be you know, just uninhabitable for the density of, of haunting presences. Yeah, that's what I always think. It, why aren't there loads and loads? Why aren't yeah. people seeing them all the time? It does, yes, it's not just because London has been continuously, other than for a brief period under the Anglo-Saxons, as I mentioned in the book, but continuously inhabited for pretty much 2,000 years. And loads of people have died there under horrible circumstances. And you're right there in the centre and and it doesn't feel very haunted. No, it's true. Although I'm sure there'll be people listening saying it's because you've got to have the gift of seeing them, which is a different conversation. But I'm less on <laughs> I'm less sure than you that they don't exist. I'm about ninety percent sure that they don't. Well I you I tell you what, if the, if the news came in that they did exist, I'd basically be pleased. Yes, well, that's exactly. There we go. You you don't not want them to no, exist. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Translucent guy going ooh, and he's got his head under his arm. It's absolutely splendid. Um, how important do you think it is to actually visit places of historical interest? Can our imaginations work more magic than I don't know a trip on a drizzly day when you're hungry, <laughs> bored? I I mean I think it's fun. It's definitely a, the fun focus for a trip. But also one of the nice things about history is that you can look it up anywhere. You can read a book anywhere. And also I, I love clicking through Wikipedia pages about, you know, seeing kings and their son and what happened to him. And you click through, you know, and, go, and suddenly you've spent 45 minutes looking at, you know, the kings of Portugal in the 13th century. And it's rich with anecdotes and you can do that anywhere. Yes. But equally, I love 
the time I've only once been to the site of the Battle of Hastings and it's great and you know it's even better with a bit of drizzle uh, and then a, a nice cream tea afterwards yeah there's something very English about drizzle yes I agree with you I remember going to and actually in the same way as I remember the bloodletting from the history of medicine and not that much else. We went on a trip to a museum about, I think, about steam engines in York on a school trip, but York wasn't that far from where I went to school. And I threw a yoghurt from my packed lunch over a wall and there was... um, a rival school who were having a trip who were behind this wall and it landed on a boy's head and exploded and covered him in yoghurt. And um, (laughs) that's the only thing I remember about that trip. (laughs) Well, that's definitely a failure in having captured your imagination about the impact of Steve. I think the thing about a museum like that as well is what happened with steam engines in the Industrial Revolution is not conjured up by seeing a load of old treasured metalwork yeah. because that makes it seem dusty and old and the truth of it is it was new and it was frightening and frightening in the same way that social media is frightening today and seeing it all sanitised by age and by curators yeah and act- ropes yeah, yeah. exactly it's not saying what's important about it yeah that's true maybe it is a lot to do with how it's presented and there is this emphasis on empathy but you really do capture this notion of newness in the book and how people throughout the ages have wanted to feel that something's being restored rather than that it's novel because it's a bit riskier, isn't it, I guess, to say this is new and it's really scary. Whereas if you go, actually, it's an old thing that's just kind of dressed up as a new thing. Yes, well, I think belief in a brilliant new idea no one's ever thought of making things better if people are cynical about that and rightly so because usually the idea turns out to have a massive problem in it or they're being tricked but sometimes it happens you know you look at the middle ages and there are a lot of ideas they didn't have like democracy and antibiotics that i'm very glad we have now yes uh, but yes if you want to sell someone on a on something new saying it's going back to something old that they think was greater or more noble or more honest is a good start and that's you know i start the book talking about how king arthur didn't exist But King Arthur is the figure to be harked back to. He was the good, great, noble, terrific at fighting king. And that's, you know, he he didn't exist. But harking back to him, it was a way of expressing their hopes for a ruler. Of course, and it's comforting, isn't it? I suppose in the same way that religion can be now, wasn't then, because it was everything then. Yeah. Right, let's move on to your next object. This is something that grows... Ah, yes. The, yes, this is, this is I've put a, a red rose there. And that's basically for the Wars of the Roses, which, uh, again, historians will point out weren't called the Wars of the Roses at the time. And, you know, I'm happy with them for saying that, but let's not forget that they are called that now. That's our name for them. They called a lot of things different things then. Yeah, it's fine, I think, yeah, isn't it's it? Fine. We all it's, know what we mean. It's a good label for them. The two roses, the red rose of uh, Lancaster and the white rose of York, weren't in fact brandished by the two sides of that battle. That's The red rose came in, Henry VII largely, who adopted the red rose, and then the Tudor rose that was supposed to be a combination in the two, uh, the red and the white, and he, he was after the Wars of the Roses. I think there was some association, but broadly those weren't the badges. Shakespeare 
<laughs> gave them those badges. Uh, but Shakespeare was a good storyteller, so I think we could stick with them. The, the red rose that's on all England rugby shirts, as a reminder of who won the Wars of the Roses, is a beautiful object in itself and something that reminds us of that bleak period where the stability of the monarchy had totally collapsed. And it's one of the most confusing periods of history. The shortcut to it is that the notion of who was rightfully king had been lost and you have two rival families and rival supporters on both sides and there's sort of nothing to draw it to an end other than people being utterly sick of fighting and the final death of the very long-lived useless Lancastrian king, Henry VI, which was unfortunately ultimately at the hands of the Yorkists. But yes, there, Red Rose, very confusing period of history even its name is disputed. You embrace the confusion, you embrace the nuance, which really, really stuck out to me because I think it makes it less intimidating, oddly. So well, I think when you're, you're told cheer for one side, obviously you can't because it happened years ago, but which side would you be on? No, that It's presented sometimes as a polarised thing, mm-hmm. whereas actually at points you go, they were all twats. They didn't really know what they were doing. (laughs) And I love that because it takes, somehow it makes it, I think with history sometimes with me, there's a thing where I go, oh, I don't know enough about it. I don't understand any of it. I feel a bit, um, I suppose, intimidated by it because it's such a hefty subject. Mm. Um, And then once you realise, oh, he's saying they were all twats and maybe it could have been me, it really makes it more accessible. Well, it's, it's very... It's, I think seeing in this era where people's behaviour is so alien to us, trying to find, as it were, goodies and baddies is fruitless. And the thing that really interests me about the Wars of the Roses is it is caused by a weakening in the office of monarch. And it's a bad system having a monarch that's in charge of everything. That's, you know, because it could be someone completely inappropriate and they have far too much power and it causes a lot of trouble. But at a time we've got no real infrastructure, no peacekeeping force, no notion of democracy or liberty, it's better than no system at all. Sure. And the system has been successful in that it provided predictability and stability because you knew who was king and you knew who the next king was. And that ceremony when the Queen died uh, last year and the first ceremony was at St James's Palace and I've forgotten what it's called but it was a long bit of old uh, not old English but English that's old read out and it was basically a repetition of the fact that Charles was now king. And for me that was an interesting relic from a time when the only thing the system could potentially deliver is certainty of who's in charge. And that's so important in order to stop people unnecessarily dying. So you have that for much of the Middle Ages, the eldest son following the king, and you get some stability, you get some terrible rulers, but stability. And then suddenly they got so cross with a ruler that they got rid of him and brought in someone who wasn't the rightful king. And they can't go back from there. And that basically causes the Wars of the Roses because they've realised that it's not some magic fairy dust and no one else can be king. You can kill the king and make someone else king. And that was dangerous knowledge. And so that's why you've got the Wars of the Roses more than anything else, more than the rights and wrongs on either side. The only idea they had to stop there being civil war has been weakened. So they've got civil war. And again, it's that link, isn't it, between what what went before and what comes as a result of it. Yeah. Do you find with history that, you know, in the way that people bond over football, I hear, when socially, <laughs> um, do you find with history 
because you've got such a passion for it and you have had for such a long time, is it exciting if you meet someone, say, at a dinner party who's really into a certain period of history or history as a whole? Or is it a kind of a bit like, can you get into an argument with them sometimes? Well, I've, done, I've not had many arguments about history. I think sometimes people conclude something slightly different, but usually it's fun to meet, you know, it's a, it's a fun argument, particularly in a relatively distant period of history. It's just how someone else might interpret it is a fun chat. Yeah. But also it's just fun to think through. It's fun to, and, and I, sometimes my wife asks, when you go to the pub with a friend and sit there all evening in the pub, what are you doing? And I, and I said, I don't know, we're talking, obviously, but what are you talking about? Is you talking about other people, friends, gossip? And I sort of think, no, quite often when two men go to the pub together and drink beer for three hours, they, are, they take it in turns to explain things to each other <laughs> that the other one already knows. <laughs> yeah. And I think the history is, f I enjoyed explaining it in my book and I enjoy re-explaining it to myself because yes. it, it's, it's like looking at a landscape. You, you sort of see it. It's interesting to look at. It's interesting to see how it went and to reflect on it. And also, presumably, like a landscape, it changes every time you look at it slightly. Yes. Uh, you yeah, know, yeah. you'll yeah. notice a tree in a different light or. Well, I, I'd certainly, all my life, the period I've covered in this book has been sort of, I've been aware of most of it and discussing it and that sort of thing. And a lot of, in thinking it through for the book, a lot of new thoughts about what a king meant to people and where the notion came from, which are very, very different things. And thinking it all through with that in mind is like looking at it again for the first time. And, it's, and it makes me think differently about other periods of history and current affairs and everything. Why is there power? Why does a person have power and why do other people follow them? And it's usually because not because they're made to, but just because that's the custom. Oh, well, let's move on to your next object. This is something that gleams. Uh, is this the Alfred Jewel? Yeah, this is, so this is the first object so I saw and I thought, David owns the Alfred Jewel. And no, I've briefly stolen it from the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford and I'm hoping I'll get it back there before they notice it's gone. <laughs> but yeah, the Alfred Jewel, which I was taken on a school trip to see when I was 10. Uh, it's, it's a lovely bit of Anglo-Saxon jewellery. I mean, it really is beautiful, apart from the picture on it, which is crap. And that, that very much defines the age. They were very good at jewellery, the Anglo-Saxons, and not much good at anything else. But that is a gleaming relic from the reign of the only English king to be called great, unless you count Knut the Great, who is usually defined as Danish. Uh, yeah, and this is Alfred the Great, who took the Kingdom of Wessex from its lowest point of near Viking annihilation and forged a sort of beginnings of a kingdom of England. And we know he's so great largely because of an authorised biography that he sponsored. <laughs> so he got his story out first and it's largely been accepted. Do you like jewellery? As a, Are you wearing a wedding ring? Do you have much valuable... What I'm, what I'm thinking about is if I get given a valuable thing, I worry I'm going to lose it because <laughs> I don't think I place enough... I don't know. I don't think I see... I get enough joy from a valuable heirloom. Or I, a, yeah, I know what you're similar, saying. Are you similar? Yeah, I don't like having... I mean, I've got some nice things, but, I but things are a worry more than... Because if you didn't have the nice thing, you'd feel exactly the same. I, yes. You know, I'd, 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 don't get me wrong, I like money, but largely because money allows you to do nice things and not to worry about money. But, but yes, I, I don't, for example, have a watch collection 
which some people who some and, people and, too yeah, yeah. And, it, and you can I think spend I think there is no ceiling on what someone would be prepared to charge for a watch so I'm yeah I don't but I like the nice things to exist and it's pleasing as we sit here now with the I think the police just around the corner at the <laughs> uh, Alfred Jewel that I smuggled out in a Greg's bag it's a, just, just pleasing that it exists but it doesn't I don't need to keep it do you own anything of historic my friends just spent a lot of money on Freddie Mercury's patio slab or something <laughs> you know Fred, they've just auctioned a load of Freddie Mercury right. stuff and it's well, not I think someone just paid over a million dollars for one of Princess Diana's jumpers yes the one with the black sheep yeah. on it and I mean just how much will that person currently be worrying about moths well that's the thing yes could you ever imagine going actually I'm gonna I'm gonna get a fragment of of Henry VIII's uh, yeah. crown and keep it in a box or would it be the same as you know, getting a nice watch. Would you just go? I don't need to have yeah, it. Yeah, I know. I'd rather. I'd rather it was somewhere safe that lots of people could look at it, and then I have to be responsible for it and and responsible for it not decaying. <laughs> so yes, that's, that's you know why museums are great for that. Yes, exactly. It was a bit where you mention is it Ethelred or Athelred? Uh, Ethelred, Ethelred actually is usually yes. pronounced. I so, mean, we don't know what they said at the time. But that we say, yeah, we, like we say War of the Roses, we say Ethelred. Yeah, we say Ethelred. So, um, where you mention Ethelred, who's an Anglo-Saxon, paying the Vikings to go away, which I just paid them to go away, and you likened it to when you had mice and wanted to pay them to go away. What I want to know is, have the mice gone away? The, the, the mice are currently in abeyance, yes. We haven't seen a mouse for over a year. So, yes, the, the, the deal I made with... The, well, it, my deal was with a pest control company. But I, my suspicion was that they were in cahoots with the mice. Oh yeah, they always are. That's how they. That's how they do it. They must be. It's yeah. key to their business. If there were no <laughs> mice, they've got no business. So, um, right. Next object. We're having to rip through them because you're so good at talking. Right. Um, this <laughs> or, is <laughs> or long-winded. <laughs> um, something to spend. Uh, a coin. Yes. I've chosen that. Uh, because, apart from me, because I'm sorry to see that <laughs> that cash is slipping out of our economy, and I don't think that banks and governments should know every penny we're spending, even if we're not money launderers, but mainly because of the letters on it, which are either FIDDEF or FD, which stand for FIDE Defensor, and that's a title that was given to the King of England, who was at the time Henry VIII, by the Pope. And I find it funny that that title given by the Pope is still flaunted by the monarchy several centuries into its uh, Protestant incarnation. And how many of us have actually, well, you probably will have done, but examined a coin and looked at all the letters on it and known... I found that bit really interesting. Oh, really? That, that, yeah. that, you know, I've looked at a coin lots of times. and Because I one of the things that's, that I, I really like about having a constitutional monarchy is that it's such an, it's like a Baker-like light switch. You know, it's a nice reminder of the past. And, and seeing those old, this papal title from the 16th century, it's still put on every new coin that's minted. I find that a fascinating relic, you know, like a, like, as I say, a Baker's light 
light switch, an old fireplace. It's I don't really want that to be removed. No, I know what you mean. When we um, we put a fireplace into our bedroom, it had just a, a hole behind it where there used to be a fireplace, and in the gap was um, a library card from I guess the the sixties that had it was it was yeah. beautiful, and it, for the same reason yeah. we thought that's been beneath the floorboards for all this time. It was just yeah, yeah. It's like new sort of snow that hasn't been trampled on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When was the last time you used cash? Oh, I paid for a cab in cash the other day. So, so you I, do, I do still, still yeah, yeah. I've always got cash. Uh, but then because it's because I like always to have cash, I then pay by a car quite often so I don't have to find yeah, more cash. I do exactly but, this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I always like to have it uh, because I feel more secure with a bit of cash in my pocket, even as fewer and fewer places accept it. Yes, yes, me too. So there's this bit where you say... As a child, you were comforted not by fictional narratives, but by fictional contexts. Mm-hmm. So you don't need the jeopardy of Narnia. You just need Aslan. Is that a really simple way of putting it? Yes. You, you, yeah, you, like, you like to think of that world and you don't need the story. What I uh, remember most from all the things I liked as a child, whether it's the Narnia stories or the Famous Five or Star Trek, was the situation. And I liked playing games where I'm in the situation. But the games didn't involve much jeopardy. And I, I was older before I realised that actually these books and stories and programmes aren't about people just living in that context. There's always a narrative drive. But I didn't need that. I like the fact that oh, I'm dri- driving around space in a ship and I can beam down to a planet and beam up onto the ship and then we'll go around that planet. And I didn't need there to be any... It always slightly annoyed me that in most episodes the shields were damaged at some point. Why do you have to damage the shields? Let's have one where the ship's in nice condition. That's what I used to do in Dungeons... I used to do role-playing the Dungeons and Dragons thing. And I I used to say, can't we just all have a nice time? They're like, that's absolutely not the point. <laughs> Let's have a holiday yeah. yes, exactly. in this nice world, and we have some some mead and and a pie, and yeah, now that, yeah. that was very much what I. That was my make believe world was without that narrative or that jeopardy. Were you writing then? Did you start writing stories at a young age? And if so, was that reflected in the stories? What? Were they kind of benign? I think I didn't write many stories except when told to by school. What I remember doing is for what felt like years when watching television, I was constantly writing in, as it were, play script. So with the characters' names and then what they said and then stage directions, a long thing about in some quite generic fantasy world but that had absolutely no jeopardy or beginning or end or whatever. It just went on and on and on. And I enjoyed writing just for the feeling of filling the pages with inconsequential events in a make-believe world. And I don't know what happened to those pages and pages, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that there's nothing worth reading in them. But yes, that was I found that uh, relaxing. Or maybe they're beneath the floorboards somewhere. Yeah. Someone will find them in 60 <laughs> yeah. years. Let's yeah. go to your final object. This is something symbolic. Yeah, the Cross of St George I've picked, not because I'm secretly very right-wing, but that obviously that <laughs> the Cross of St George just sort of feels slightly tarnished by... Uh, by... And it's a pity, isn't it, when uh, you think, no, that's... <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. It should, it sh- yes, exactly. It should be a, a symbol of mild national self-confidence, not nationalism, but there you go. But it's funny that St George is our patron saint because he is someone who had nothing to do with England and uh, the thing he's famous for doing is impossible. 
Because whether or not ghosts exist, I'm pretty convinced dragons don't because they'd be much more obvious. But it's funny he's our patron saint. And it's basically because of his supposed martial valour, which was adopted very strongly by Edward III, who created the Order of the Garter, and there was a big into chivalry. The interest in St George, the Order of the Garter, all the, this sort of early sense of English self-definition that Edward III really kicked off. He was like the first of the Plantagenet kings to say, you know, maybe we should be speaking English like the people we rule and pushing the notion of Englishness. And he did this by associating England with fighting in France. Because the other thing he did is he claimed he was also the rightful king of France. And the fact that he managed to do that while being the first English king for centuries to be overtly English is a sort of sign of his, I suppose, skill as a manipulator of his image. But yes, I find the Cross of St George, the association of England with St George, the fighting that that was used to justify in the Middle Ages, quite funny and you know no objection to it being the flag of England but remembering that it came quite randomly into the national consciousness is a funny thing to reflect upon like seeing the FD on the coins and the thing about the Middle Ages that becomes so repetitive it's amusing is the desperate attempts to conquer France and it's just not a goer you know that yes. and people did some English kings did tremendously well hanging on to sections of France, but inevitably the French took them back, as you'd expect, uh, and it, it caused obviously a lot of death, a lot of pain, huge amount of expense for the English crown, and they didn't seem to notice. Well, the French don't come over and try and take over England, and that's probably because they realised that it would be a logistical nightmare. I know it's strange, isn't it? It reminds me of. Um a girl I used to know who sent her kids to boarding school and she said, I hate them being away. I just miss them so much. And I said, well, why have you sent them? And she said, it's just what's done. It's just what's done. <laughs> and it's funny. I was thinking about that when you were talking. It's just a thing of, well, that's what we've got to do. Yeah, we've got to, try and, questioning... got to try and conquer France or we'll look like, you know, I'm not, you know, a proper king of England. Yeah. Frankly, the most damaging times was when it wasn't an immediate disaster because then it was just a disaster that was slower to, yes, to happen. Going, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the, the result is the same. It just takes longer and probably more people die. Well, the, yeah, the other thing that probably kicked off the Wars of the Roses other than a weakening of the office of king was because Henry V had done very well taking over France and had secured for himself that he was made heir to the French throne but died before he could inherit it and because he died so young he left a nine-month-year-old son on the throne of England and then the king of France died so this nine-month-year-old is also proclaimed king of France and the nine-month-year-old wasn't much more effective as a king when he grew to adulthood he was Henry VI and you know the whole loss of confidence in his regime the bewilderment in England is all made so much worse by how depressed everyone is that they had nearly conquered France and now it's all being run by the French again. And he's just so unnecessary. Of course France is being run by the French. They're right there. <laughs> it's really difficult. Yeah. All these famous English victories where we defeat larger French armies, the problem is in that fact. The French armies are always going to be larger. Occasionally we'll have a great day, but then there'll be another battle and another and eventually France will be French again. So give up. Build some roads. Yes, absolutely. 
<laughs> it makes you feel sorry for people who take over and just have to do, even if a bit of them's going, why are we doing this? Yeah, well, they can't, yeah. yeah. There are a couple of clever kings, Edward IV and Henry VII both did this, where they had a sort of small invasion of France and persuade the French king to just buy them off. And it's a bit like a bit of protection money. You know, there's a lot of pressure on me to invade France. I'll just turn up with some soldiers. You give me a bit of money and then we'll say no more about it for 20 years. Yeah. That that wasn't a terrible system. No, it's, but it's funny they had to do that in the first place. I know you say you don't want to be in charge of much in the book. I don't either. I don't yearn for any sort of responsibility at all really other than what I've got but what I wondered is so that this was so I don't want to be in charge of anything but the things that I am in charge of apart from my children and things like that are you know like my receipts and, and you know when people say that they just give their receipts to their accountant like in a sock yes it, ma- it fills me it makes me come out in a cold sweat what I want to know is the things that you are in charge of do you have this fastidious I, I, I really like to do them properly <laughs> Or do you, are you kind of more like, oh, it's all right? I, 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 but the boring answer is I think I'm in between. I'm not totally slapdash, but I'm, I'm certainly not rigorous. And I leave things too late. So yeah, but, I, well, yeah. that, but that fits in completely with the book, doesn't it? But it's not one or the other. So things are seldom <laughs> one or the other. It's that in-between bit that you explore. It's, it's kind of, I suppose it's the nuance. Well, I, I, I think that the people who are neither one or the other don't get so much access to the media at the moment. And I think I think the being sort of not extremely one thing or another is, is the most common human state and uh, is to be, if not celebrated, at least respected. Yes, yes. Well, last question. How are you with the history of your own life? Do you like looking through, say, old radio scripts from the early days or, or are you more kind of focused on the, on the present? I th- or I've, in between? I'm probably a bit in between. I d- wouldn't look at old scripts. I sometimes look through old diaries, with just appointment diaries, just to sort of go, Where was, what was going on in this time of year nine years ago? Just to sort of, and you sort of look at them, and then that, that week, uh, whether it was stressful or fun or whatever, starts to come back to you. And I like that. I think I feel like 20 years ago, I could remember everything that had happened to me. And now I'm aware of so many gaps and sort of and occasionally you'll bump into someone and you sort of think, oh, my God, there was that whole thing. And we did the radio recording and the, and it's all it's, it's barely there at all. I've got a, access to an echo of it. Yes. Um, and that's quite sometimes quite frightening, the thought that I'm going to forget the life I've lived. <laughs> uh, but there's just more things have happened. And, and it turns out that means some of the data has to be chucked away. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I felt like I could have talked to you for two hours. The book is just fantastic. It can't and shouldn't be read quickly. You need to, you need to give it the time it deserves and the time I'm sure it took to write it as well. It's so detailed. It's so gleeful. It's so funny. And yeah, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I will read. I've got the reading list at the back. I am now going to read a book about the history of Derbyshire because I want to see if I can go deep, I suppose, mm. see how I feel learning about um, more about Richard Arkwright and things like that. So, um, yeah, thank you so well, much. Well, thank you. It's been great fun talking to you. Oh, um, well, thanks for having me. I'm glad. 
please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Make sure you never miss an episode. If you can, please leave us a nice review if you're enjoying listening because it helps get the word out and it helps other people find us. And finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or see who else we've spoken to, go to penguin.co.uk forward slash podcasts, plural. As always, we have some brilliant guests coming up in the next couple of months, so make sure you don't miss out. I'm Izzy Sutty. See you next time. Bye.